And if you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy, the letter 1 Timothy. We are in chapter 4, which you'll find our reading on page 1179. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll, you might remember that uh, we are looking at chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. Many of you, maybe all of you, uh, will have a heading for that section in your Bible. In the ESV, in the Pew Bible there, if you're using that, these verses are under the very helpful heading, A Good Servant of Christ Jesus. And that's a very accurate way to think about this section. In these verses, Paul is telling Timothy what it means for him to be a true pastor of God's people in this local church in Ephesus. In fact, this might be, these verses might be the most doctrinally rich section in all of the Bible on the work of the pastor. Now, we won't always go this slow, I promise, but we have done two sermons already on these verses. The first sermon looked broadly, you'll remember, at the character of a gospel minister, the character, his DNA, if you will. We said that a pastor needs to be a teacher, an athlete, and a farmer. As a teacher, he loves to share all that God is teaching him. He can be scholarly. Some of us are more so than others. Depends on the pastor. But he has to have that bug, that sort of desire, that interest to interact with people and pass on what he knows. As an athlete, the pastor must long to grow in holiness and devotion to Christ. Now we know, we know that no one is perfected in this life. Pastors, I uh, certainly need forgiveness and I need grace like everybody else. However, there should be a clear desire and determination in the minister of the gospel to grow in holiness. It is certainly, it is certainly wrong. It is certainly wrong to demand that pastors be spiritual supermen untouched by sin, but it is equally wrong and even more dangerous to give them a pass when it comes to setting an example. This may feel friendly, this giving them the pass, but it's incredibly destructive for that man, for his family, and for the church. Lastly, as a farmer, pastors are men who look at the long game and are not addicted to immediate results. Paul and Jesus repeatedly encourage us to look beyond the superficial results and to wait patiently for the day when every ministry will be finally judged as either weeds or hay and stubble or gold and silver. Recent scandals in the church in the United States only confirm this important teaching that the truth about a man's ministry is not always on the surface. Numbers in the pew and budgets rarely tell the whole story. So then in broad strokes, that is the character of a pastor, teacher, athlete, farmer. In our second sermon last week, uh, we also tried to characterize briefly uh, the character of his work. So now moving from him to his work. 
He is to command and teach, you remember, the good doctrine, the faithful sayings of Scripture. Command roughly means to urge, to insist, to graciously urge and insist on the truths of God's word inside the church. Of course, this assumes, right, that the pastor will know the doctrine and will be well-trained, as Timothy certainly was. In addition, you'll remember Paul expects the work of the pastor to include not just commands, but also discipleship or teaching. Paul says, command and teach these things. Paul clearly anticipates that much of Timothy's time will be taken up with disciple-making. To put it another way, Timothy is to teach these things, not just shout about them or take public stands. We all need to see why the Bible teaches what it teaches. We need answers and we have questions. Lastly, these two activities, this commanding and teaching, are to be wrapped up and made warm and alive as Timothy sets an example in every aspect of his life in his speech, in his love, and in his purity. Together, I hope you can see how these sermons sort of mesh together. The man and the mission, the man and the calling are clearly aligned. Today, I want to add just one last piece uh, to this picture. We've seen the character of a gospel minister. We've seen the work of the gospel minister. Now let's consider today the power of gospel ministry, or to put it another way, what are to be the methods of the ministry of the pastor and of really the whole church? Please stand if you would, just as the people did in Nehemiah, to receive with joy the word as it is read. I'll be reading just verses 13 through 16. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself. And on the teaching, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we are so dependent upon your word. If we are to understand ourselves, our times, and even our church, what we are to be. And so we pray now that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open to us the full meaning of your word and that you would transform us and conform us to your word. We pray, Father, that you would do these things through the ministry of your Holy Spirit who wrote this word and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Timothy, Timothy came to faith like so many other people, myself, probably many, many others in this room, Timothy came to faith through his mother. This pattern would be repeated again and again in the history of the church. In fact, it seems to be a pattern, something the Spirit does in 
many men. Uh, you think of maybe the most famous Christian of all time who's not in the Bible, uh, St. Augustine. His mother, her prayers, her love was critical to his conversion, and she was the greatest spiritual influence on his life. A little closer to home, J. Gresham Machen, who is responsible for so many of the reformed institutions and things that we enjoy today as a reformed community, Machen credited his mother with uh, keeping him in the faith when he went to Germany to study uh, the Bible in a sort of unbelieving setting. It was writing home to his mother. It was her faith that had such a powerful influence on his life. And of course, we could add many others. Spurgeon talks about the massive impact his mother had on his salvation, his ministry, everything he did. Well, that was Timothy as well. Under the instructions of his mother and his grandmother, Timothy thrived as a young Christian teenager, a young Christian boy, really. But there was something different about him, something different about his gifting, and his local church, his whole church, uh, came to see this very uh, early on. And eventually, uh, Timothy was taken by the local elders there in his church, and he was ordained. They laid hands on him and set him apart uh, for ministry. Those same elders seemed to recognize very early on that Timothy's calling as an elder was not a calling he could fulfill by staying there in his local church. And so he was sort of given to Timothy, for, uh, to Paul rather, he was given to Paul for training to enter sort of what, into what we would call today full-time ministry, to do nothing else but to learn and to travel and to teach. And as we read through our New Testament books like Corinthians, we every once in a while will get a, a little hint or a little snapshot of Timothy's life and ministry. Well, eventually, <clears throat> eventually, Scripture and also tradition tell us that Timothy found his great calling. And of course, that great calling was when Paul sent him to the city of Ephesus. There in Ephesus, and you can see this in the text, I think, Timothy was transformed from sort of a traveling missionary to what we would call today a pastor that is an ordained gospel minister with a clear and specific calling to a particular church. This letter then was written by Paul to instruct Timothy in that work, and it has been treasured ever since by the church as an indispensable guide, an indispensable guide to the life of the church and to the work of pastoral ministry. In fact, I think pastors especially, should read verse 13 as if it had been just written yesterday and as if it had been written directly to them. Paul writes in verse 13 these words that are so easy to skip over but are so meaningful. Paul says, until I come, until I come. Did Paul ever come? We don't know for certain. If he did come, it was only briefly. But I think there are deeper things in this simple, solemn statement. I believe that what follows these solemn words is not just a one-time encouragement for a guy named Timothy, but a pattern for the whole church as it awaits the Lord and his apostles and their return. 
In other words, these words, until I come, in some sense, mark the turning of redemptive history, a movement from the apostolic age when the church must remain faithful to the apostles without their immediate presence, a movement from a handful of apostles trying to get from one place to the other as best they can, to an army, really, of gospel ministers charged to build faithfully on the foundation that they had laid. So much is this the case that I think every pastor should read these words as spoken directly to him in his ministry moment. Until I come, until I come, here is what you are to be about. In our verses this morning, Paul lays out then the true methods, the true strategies for doing gospel ministry. These are the methods that Timothy must employ, especially in Paul's absence. In these verses, Paul will call Timothy to devote himself without reservation and without distraction to the ministry of the word. And alongside that, to make sure and good use of his ordination and of the gifting of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this task. In short, then, the true means or methods of gospel ministry are the word of God and the spirit of God, the word and spirit. Look with me then briefly at how Paul brings these things out, I think, with such clarity and conviction. So first, notice with me that until the apostles come, Timothy is to be utterly devoted to, first of all, the word of God. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, that is a very accurate translation that you have there in your ESV, but as one renowned Greek scholar points out, it should literally read this way, just a small change. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation, and to the teaching. In other words, what he's trying to get out is that these three things are not just a random list. He's just not saying the same thing three times. Rather, each of these represents a formal part of their worship. There was the public reading, followed by the exhortation, and then at some point there would have been the teaching. Now, these exact Greek words are used throughout the ancient world to describe the worship that went on in the synagogue. For example, we have a sign from a synagogue uh, near Jerusalem. It dates from the time of Jesus and the apostles. It uses this exact same language. This exact actually word is written on it. It says, this is a synagogue for the public reading, same word, of the Torah. And did you notice in our reading this morning from Acts 13 that our Boyajan did, that we saw this exact same pattern in the synagogue, or they would have been free to call it a church and probably called their synagogue church at times. Both words are from the Old Testament and used interchangeably. In the synagogue, the elders of the church would do two readings, 
One from the law or the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and then the second from the prophets. Those were their two testaments, if you will. And the elder would get up and he would do those readings. And then if there was a rabbi present, he might be invited as Jesus was in Luke chapter 4, as Paul is in Acts 13. He's offered, uh, and the, the elder says to him, do you have an exhortation? That's literally the word there. Do you want to exhort? And of course, Paul uh, jumps at that chance, and Elder Boyajan read that exhortation. This is exactly what we see in Acts 13. The elders who had the charge of the synagogue would ask Paul, in the same language, Jesus as well, do you want to do this? And then they would. So Paul here, in commanding Timothy to do these things, these were things Timothy knew. His mother was Jewish. His grandmother was Jewish. He, like Paul, grew up in the synagogue. He knew exactly what Paul meant when he said, until I come, give heed, devote yourself to the public readings of Scripture and to the or exhortation and to the teaching. Now, the temptation at this moment, especially for pastors uh, like myself, is probably to rush forward and, and talk about the exhortation because that's what pastors tend to think about the most. But before we leave this scene, let's not underestimate the power of the public reading of God's word. In the Old Testament, the public reading of the word was essential to the repentance and faith of the congregation. For example, in our reading today from Nehemiah, did you notice this? The people have lost sight, they've entirely lost sight of who they are, what they're to believe, how they're to live in the world. And it's the solemn reading of the word in public by the priests that triggers really nothing less than a revival, a reformation among the people just through the solemn public reading of scripture. In Exodus 24, just to give another example, there are many Moses reads the scriptures publicly to the body of the people and as a way of confirming their covenant with God. Do you know what the people do? Because we do it. This is why we do it. He read the word to them and then they all said, amen and amen. That was their way of adopting what had been read for themselves. Then Paul in his letters added to this. Not only are we to read the Old Testament, we are to read the letters. Colossians 4.16, Paul writes, And when this letter has been read among you publicly, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. 1 Thessalonians, I put you under an oath before God to have this letter read aloud to the brothers. And so today, in obedience to that tradition and to Paul's commands, we no longer read from the Law and the Prophets, but from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Every Sunday, following that same pattern. Here's the point. Whether we're looking in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or the synagogue, the pattern is crystal clear. An ordained man in leadership is to solemnly take the word and read it publicly so that the people may be reformed According to the scriptures, Jesus and Paul both participate in this practice and urge us to keep it and to continue it. Now, I hope that this will start to change a little uh, for us the way we come to worship here every week. When Elder Boyajan or another substituting for him 
enters the pulpit to read the Old Testament and the New Testament, we need to be reminded that he and we are stepping into 3,000 years of church history and that we are fulfilling the commandment explicitly given to us until Christ returns. I've been personally uh, stunned and grieved uh, to sit in other services, other church services, other places uh, where there was simply no sustained reading of Scripture at all. None. The same may be true for the singing of the Psalms. As a church, we don't believe that we are limited to sing only the Psalms, but, however, the New Testament explicitly commands the singing of the Psalms and the public reading of God's word. We need to obey God rather than follow the latest worship fashions. This isn't about being snobbish. I hope I'm not coming off that way. It's not about being traditional. I, I get, I'm always a little annoyed when someone says our service is traditional. It's not about being snobbish. It's not about being traditional. It's about being scriptural. It's about obeying the explicit commands of the Old and New Testament. And it's about being humble enough to let the church over the last 4,000 years tell us something about how maybe we should be worshiping the Lord. And that brings us to the other elements here. Timothy is to be devoted to the public reading, but also to the exhortation and the teaching. Exhortation here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We'll do that another time, but it's what we would today call a sermon. It really is. Whereas teaching would have been more informal, there might have been a question and answer time, um, maybe primarily information given at time. Exhortation here is really the word to appeal to someone. It's a challenge. It's a call to change. It's a call to be different in response to God's word. It's often used actually as a word of encouragement. So it doesn't necessarily have to be something angry. It could be uh, the minister calling you to be encouraged at the thought of who you are in Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful word. In the writings of Paul, his exhortations come throughout his letters, and they often come with an appeal to Christ. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but at the height of his exhortations, Paul tends to say something like, by the mercies of Christ or by the sacrifice of Christ, I'm calling you, I'm exhorting you, I'm appealing to you to do this, to say this. Most famous example, same word in Greek that we have here. You know it as a different English word, but it's the same thing in the original, Romans 12.1. I exhort you, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an exhortation. After laying out all that God has done for us in Christ in Philippians, you come to Philippians 4.2, and Paul turns from sort of instruction to exhortation. And so Philippians 4.2 reads, I exhort, same word, I exhort Yodia and I exhort Synodiki to agree in the Lord. There's the exhortation. In view of Christ's mercies, this then is how we are to live. And that's what Paul is doing again and again. In fact, Paul viewed his entire ministry, his entire ministry as a ministry of exhortations. And so in 2 Corinthians, that passage we used for our call to worship, he uses the word again in Greek. 
And he says, I am exhorting. We have the word appeal there, but it's actually the word for exhortation. I am an ambassador for Christ, exhorting people to be reconciled to God. Paul then is urging Timothy to use the same method of ministry. Paul anticipates that Timothy's time and energy will be spent largely on his ministry of the word. So he can write Timothy in his second letter, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, there's that word, with complete patience and teaching. This command should be, or should come as no surprise, since Paul has already said before that uh, command, all scripture is breathed out by God, and what is it profitable for? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, do you see what this means for us, for me, especially as a minister, but for every one of you as well? This is the time for me to exhort. <laughs> if, Paul, if Paul called Timothy to lean on the Bible, to publicly read it, to exhort with it, to teach it, to make it the centerpiece of what he's going to do in his ministry. How can any pastor or any church or any Christian today choose a different method, a different approach? In fact, if you think about it, we have today even more reason to rely on Scripture than Paul and Timothy. We have a completed New Testament when Paul wrote this to Timothy, remember, Timothy had a scroll, an Old Testament scroll, and maybe the letter to the Ephesians, maybe, probably. And that might have been it. And yet, even in that setting, what does Paul say? I am so confident in Scripture. I'm so confident in its power to change lives that, Timothy, you are to make this the center of everything you do. This is what you are to give yourself to full time. This then is the method of true gospel ministry. You know, as a pastor, you're often introduced to people. You know, you'll be with a friend and you say, oh, this is my uh, minister. And uh, I always think in those minutes, uh, I wonder what the other person thinks. You know, minister of what? Well, the answer in this church, and I pray it will always be the case, is minister of the word. Minister of the word. Now, the generations before us, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, in the church, they fought the battle over inerrancy. That was the big battle. Is the Bible without error? Now, that fight continues, but for the most part, in a church like ours, we're not fighting over that anymore. If you're here today, it's probably because you have long ago uh, decided that the Bible is inerrant. But there's a new battle today. It's related, but it's... It's new. And that battle is over the sufficiency of Scripture. Not the inerrancy, but the sufficiency. So my appeal, my exhortation to you is, in light of a passage like this, rely heavily upon the Word in all your living, your parenting, your working, your witnessing, your worshiping, your thinking, everything that you do. Rely upon the scriptures. As Paul says here, be devoted to it. Can you say that about yourself? 
that you're devoted. The word here is the word used a chapter ago to say that deacons may not be addicted to wine. It's the word for addiction. Can you say of yourself, I have a devotion that I can share with my children, I can share with anyone walking by, a devotion to the word of God. How do you get that devotion? You only get it when you come to a place where you actually believe that you cannot live your life without it. You can't function as a parent, you can't function as a spouse, you can't function as a church member, you can't do Sunday school, you can't do anything without it. And once you get to that very low place in your life, where you realize you don't really have anything to say without it, then you become devoted. And so first and foremost, foremost, our method is the word of God, and we are to be devoted utterly to it. Second, two, motive, two methods here. Second, notice that this word is not a word just unhinged, left to itself, but what is in view here is the word as it is taught to us and as it is applied to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Where do you see that? Verse 14. Immediately after telling him to devote himself to the word, listen to what Paul writes. Do not neglect the charismata, the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Paul actually began this letter, you might remember, in chapter 1, verse 18, by calling Timothy to remember these prophecies that were made at the time of his ordination and to lean upon them. And he returns to that advice at, again in 2 Timothy 1 when he writes, For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, the charismata of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy's calling is, is a rough one. This is not, when, in pastor terms, when we talk about this with each other, you talk about that sort of poison pill. If a young pastor, his first calling is awful, it can be sort of the end of him. This was that kind of calling. It was a rough calling. He's in his late 20s, early 30s. He's been called to a major church in a major city. The men there, elders much older than him, much more respected men, have entered into this office of elder and they're leading the church astray. And Timothy is chosen by Paul, despite the fact that he is probably a fairly timid man, a very easygoing kind of guy, yet Paul sends him as a faithful son to go into that setting and demand that the church turn and obey the word. He's going to face stiff opposition from within, and that's not even to mention persecution that we know was already happening in Ephesus against the Christians there. To get through that, Paul wants Timothy to remember his ordination. Ordination, simply put, refers to the laying on of hands when a man is called into ministry, not simply by his own internal call, but the public recognition of that call by a body of elders. Paul himself even went through this process. You heard it read for you, Acts 13, 2 through 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, 
they laid their hands on them and sent them off. When times were difficult, you see, Paul could look back at that moment and it reminded him that his mission, his whole mission to the Gentile world had been confirmed not just by his own heart, but by the whole church. This wasn't just his idea. It was the spirit speaking through many different people and confirming his calling. Paul, too, could look back to the prophecies that were made at his ordination, his call to go to the Gentile world. The Spirit of God spoke to the elders that day and especially and specifically asked for Paul and Barnabas to be set apart. Now, Paul wants that same experience for Timothy. He wants Timothy to remember his ordination, to remember that he is not alone in Ephesus. His calling has been authorized by the church of Jesus Christ. A board of elders has laid their hands on him and confirmed his calling. And because, like Paul, Timothy's calling was going to be so difficult, prophecies were probably added by the Holy Spirit to sort of encourage him in what he was about to face. So Paul and Timothy could both look back to the formal accreditation through the laying on of hands by the elders of the church and also the unique prophecies that strengthen them. Now, we don't have time this morning. I'm not going to do this to fully explore ordination and what it means. But I do want to add just a few things. The laying on of hands was a firmly established Old Testament practice. It was already in practice in and among the Jews. It represented a transfer of authority and a giving of grace from one person to another, a calling down of grace for that person. Sometimes the transfer had already happened and the laying on of hands is more of a recognition of it. Sometimes it seems to be happening as the ordination is happening. A great question then to ask any person today. This happens to me all the time. People will come up to me and say, oh, I'm a pastor too. A great question for that person is, by virtue of what authority? By what authority do you claim that title? Our church uh, believes that you must be ordained by a large group of elders. That's not enough to just feel called. The Holy Spirit has to speak through many people to determine, to show that you are called. And so when someone steps, let me just encourage you, when someone steps into your life, claims to be a pastor, don't believe them right away. Ask for their credentials. How do they know they're a pastor? I can't, I can't tell you how many men and women have come up to me and said, just glibly, yeah, I'm a pastor too. How? When? Why? How did that happen? And often you find out, it's the case right here in our community, that they're just self-ordained. They went on the internet and filled something out. Or a couple of people who like them decided to call them pastor. Now imagine if that was Timothy's situation. What would he have to look back to as he faces off with these elders? Well, you know, a couple guys in my local church thought, you know, I probably love the Lord and should do this. That's not going to last. But he has so much more than that. He has the confidence of doing ministry in word and spirit because of this laying on of hands from the elders. In asking then that men go through these processes, that they be ordained by many elders, that their, their ordination be recognized. Once again, we're not being mean-spirited. I hope it doesn't come across that way. Um, we're not trying to be mean-spirited. We're not trying to be arrogant. What we're asking is this, 
Has the Spirit of God confirmed your personal sense of call? Timothy and Paul could look back to a body of elders, really ultimately probably hundreds of elders, who had by the Spirit confirmed their calling over the years. And notice this ordination was considered valid in all the churches. Timothy is not reordained when he shows up in Ephesus, right? Instead, Paul says, remember your ordination. And he expects that the Ephesians will recognize the ordination already given to him. Sadly, uh, I much respect uh, Charles Spurgeon, wonderful author. One of the few things he had terribly wrong was this issue of ordination. He believed that a minister was ordained because he had a personal sense of call, and he found a church who said he was ordained too, that he could preach in. It's just not biblical. Uh, the Bible does not ever show us, not for one moment, an independent church. There is no such thing in the New Testament. The church was always linked by its faith, its creeds, its officers, and its faith. The confessional hymn that we read just a little while ago, chapter 3, verse 16, probably wasn't written for the first time in Ephesus. It was a hymn that was circulating through the churches. Paul's many trustworthy sayings given to us in this letter were probably not new to this letter. The church's doctrinal decisions and its ordinations, as we see so clearly in places like Acts 15, were considered binding throughout the whole of the church. Its pastors were pastors wherever they went. To be a Christian and to be a Christian church, then, is to live in connection. To do ministry in the Spirit is not simply to have personal feelings about your calling. When I say do ministry in the Spirit, you may assume immediately that I simply mean your feelings about what God has called you to do. But to do ministry in the Spirit is to have the Spirit confirm those feelings through the government of His church and through many other godly men. And that is the very basis for this verse, isn't it? That what happened that day, that what happened to Timothy that day with those elders is still relevant for Timothy today in Ephesus because there is one faith and one spirit and one baptism. Alongside the recognition and authorization of his calling, Paul adds that there were even prophecies were, that were made, and later in 2 Timothy, we're told that a gift was given as well. Now, in God's wisdom, we know almost nothing about the details of these additional gifts. Uh, what prophecies, uh, what did that look like? We don't know. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. I think about all commentators, I think pretty much agree that we can't tell for certain if the prophecies bestowed the gift on him or if he already had the gift and the prophecies were people in the church with the gift of prophecy seeing what he already had and acknowledging it through his prophecy. We don't know. But whatever the case, God have, has given us here, I think, all the information we need. The point is simply this, word and spirit, word and spirit. Timothy's methods of ministry involve a reliance on the word and on the spirit who wrote that word. It is extraordinary, if you think about it with me for a moment, to consider how dependent Jesus chose to be on both the spirit and the word in his ministry. His whole public ministry begins, you'll remember, with the Spirit of God being poured on him without measure through his baptism and the descending of a dove from heaven. 
the dove descends from heaven and he experiences in that moment the ultimate ordination when God the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Of course, as God the Son, Jesus was already in full communion with the Holy Spirit. So what's happening there? Why bother with an ordination? Well, it's because at his ordination, at his baptism, in his human nature, he was fully ordained with the Spirit of God for doing ministry. And so we're told that immediately after his ordination, the Spirit carried him away into the wilderness to complete the next phase of ministry preparation. And that pattern of time in the wilderness before starting your ministry, if you know the Old Testament, that was standard practice for the great prophets of old. So that just as the great faithful prophets were taken by the Spirit out in the wilderness to struggle and learn, so Christ, following that example, after his ordination, goes into a time of greater training and preparation. Of course, Jesus, I don't need to tell you, Jesus didn't need this training. He didn't need it. But to fulfill all righteousness, he endured it. Jesus was then, you see, the ultimate gospel minister. And he still is. And he freely chose, he freely chose in his human nature to rely on the spirit and the word for ministry. So can those who follow him do anything else? Think about how he relied for a moment with me on the word in his ministry. In our midweek prayer meeting, Pastor Trescar noted how Jesus used the image of the vine, the well-known theology of the vine, to call God's people to fruit-bearing. Almost all of Jesus' sermons and lessons are deeply and obviously tied to the Old Testament scriptures. He even preached publicly in his childhood synagogue using Isaiah the prophet. There was never a greater ministry, and there was never a ministry more committed to the scriptures. But it wasn't just his public ministry, was it? You know, some pastors uh, talk a good talk from the pulpit, but the word of God is not their method in other places. They're not devoted. But that was not the way with Jesus. Jesus' dependence on the word was so extraordinary, so complete, that even in his death and torture, he chose to narrate his own death using the Psalms. Do you know how hard that would have been? Have you ever tried to think straight while in debilitating pain? You see, there's only one way he could have pulled this off because he knew those passages so intimately, so deeply, at such a gut level, that he could cry them out while being gruesomely tortured to death. And so here's my point today. We do all these readings, we do all these recitations of scripture every Sunday, don't we? We have a call to worship that scripture. We recite a scriptural response. We sing psalms. We read from both Old Testament and New Testament. And then we have a 45-minute exhortation, 45 minutes if you're lucky, on the meaning of yet another text that I read, right? Now, here's the thing. We don't do that because we're traditional. 
We don't do that because we're old-fashioned. We don't do that because we're snobs. It has nothing to do with it. We do it because we follow Christ. It's an imitation of him. It is in remembrance of him. It is until he and the apostles come. Because he relied entirely on the spirit and the word, we must do the same. We don't do this because we're snobs. We do it because like Timothy, we know no other power. We know no other way. These are the true gospel methods. Maybe if I were better at telling jokes and stories, maybe I would be tempted to go in a different direction. But I know that I need the word and spirit, as do you. I know that if the sermon this morning does not deal with the text, I will soon lose both your respect and your attention. Now, how about you? Do you believe in the sufficiency of scripture in your own life? in your own home, when you leave this place? Do you really believe that when you're depressed, opening your Bible will be better than binging your favorite TV show? Have you tried again and again to witness to your unsafe friend or family member and then one day in shock and horror realize that in all those encounters and all those discussions, you did not once read scripture with him or her, or even paraphrase it to him or her? Are you trying to complete the ministry God has given to you without these methods, without reliance upon word and spirit? I know I don't do these things as I should, but I am so glad, and I know you are too, that Jesus did. And so I exhort you by the mercies and example of Christ, let the word and spirit be your power, your method in all that God has called you to in this life. The arm of flesh will fail you. His word and spirit will never fail. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that as a church, in all our public works especially, we would be entirely devoted to your word, to its reading, to its teaching, and to the exhortation that attends it. And that we would, in those times, look to the Spirit alone to confirm the man who does the reading and exhortation, and to take those reading and exhortation to our hearts. We look to your word and to your Spirit who wrote the word, for all that we have need of. Help us then to leave this place, Father, more devoted to these things and to rely upon them in every difficulty of life. For we pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.